Well, good morning, West Mountain. I invite you now to turn in your Bible to Exodus, Exodus 15. A special welcome to you if you're visiting with us or watching on the live stream, wherever you may be. If you're in-house and you do not have a copy of God's Word, please look in front of you, in the rack in front of you. You'll see a Bible there. Please, we encourage you to take it, follow along, Exodus chapter 15, second book of the Bible. In this book, this study that we've been in the past few months, Exodus, we have witnessed over and over again, the presentation of God. Presentation of God. Yes, the character, the attributes, the perfections of God all unveiled here. We've seen God's great compassion to hear the cries of his people. Do you remember as this opened in Exodus 2? We heard the great cry from the people and the compassion of our God to hear that cry. We've seen God's great love to declare a plan to liberate his people. Remember that in Exodus 3. We've seen God's great patience with Moses and with Pharaoh, even through the protests, the many protests, remember, of Moses, even through the hard-heartedness of Pharaoh, over and over again, the great long-suffering of our God. And of course, with that, tied to that, God's great mercy with his people Israel, to spare them. Do you remember the Passover? To spare them. Yes, God brought judgment on Pharaoh and Egypt, but mark it, that was judgment after nine plagues. Nine warnings. I ask you, is that mercy? Nine times to repent. No matter what else we have observed in Exodus... God's long-suffering continues to be on display here in this book. Your God, your merciful God, gracious and slow to anger, abundant in steadfast love. That's your God on display in Exodus, and we'll see that more and more in the weeks and months to come. And we highlight that to start this morning because God revealed, the God revealed in Exodus, bucks up against a perception that's out there, and maybe you have. The, the God revealed, the true God revealed in Exodus, right, doesn't jive with the common, faulty Bible perception, and you know this, of an Old Testament mean God. You know that one. The Old Testament mean caricature God. You'll hear it said this way, those that subscribe to this, I prefer the God of the New Testament. He is much more loving and not smiting. I love that God, as if there's two. Yes, some treat the Bible if it indeed contains two gods, two testaments, two gods, one of the old, one of the new. But beloved, as we'll see with historical highlighter today, God's great love, patience, and mercy are all who God is for all time, past, present, and future. God himself declares, after all, in the Old Testament, Malachi 3, 6, For I, the Lord, what? Do not change. 
I don't become some different God you haven't seen before in the New Testament. It never changed. It's the same God for all time. And so we will again see the great mercy of God on display in our passage today. Now, we have been seeing that as God reveals in this account who he is. Remember, from the God who simply is, the great I am, we looked at that. We saw that unveiled in Exodus 3, right through to the revelation to Pharaoh. And what did he say in Exodus 7? By this you shall know what? That I am the Lord, right? To Israel, to Egypt. Revealing who he is. Those are key, make that paramount revelations in this book. Who God is and God alone. However, that is not the only revelation in this book that God intends here. No, it's not. What we're going to see over the next couple of chapters is God revealing who Israel is. This becomes key. This is who you are. I'm revealing who I am. But the backdrop here, and this is so important as we begin, who I am, God says, is cast against who you really are. And if you're going to be my people, you need to know who you are and what I'm calling you out of. So key. And and I don't mean here just his people, right? With divine law and priestly robes and roles That'll be there and we're getting to that. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about the precursor to that, the forerunner to that. By way of preparation for that, God goes to the inside, to the inside. And before that, as we'll see, God will show Israel, each man and woman, the very heart within them. The heart of his people, the heart of humanity, the heart of all since Adam and Eve. This is what we'll see on display in our text for this morning. You're going to see this very clearly on display. And God will do that by way of testing. There it is. Testing. In fact, we would more accurately say tests. That's what we're going to see. Three of them, at least articulated in our passage today, tests. And like all tests are designed to do, tests reveal Like the student is tested to reveal his knowledge of a subject. You know that. That's why he's tested, to reveal what he really knows. Like the prototype is tested to reveal its strength. How strong is this thing really? All tests are designed to reveal. So too God's people are tested. And here it is, tested so that they know what's in their heart. Now, can we just let that digest for a moment? Because this is it. We begin a portion here in Exodus, a wilderness journey, that if we could put it in capsule form, in a nutshell form, we would say this. The whole purpose of this journey is so that, Israel, you would know what resides in your heart. Deuteronomy 8, looking back, Moses, on those 40 years, says this to the generation that will now... um, Take over and go into the promised land. Verse 2, chapter 8, Deuteronomy. And you shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God, this is now to corporate Israel, has led you these 40 years in the wilderness that he might humble you, and then listen to this, testing you so that you would know what was in your heart. That's There is your purpose for what we're going to see today. 
You, God says to Israel, need to be tested so that you know what's in your heart. And so, in this text, we begin to see God's testing on his people. This is where it begins, right here. They're a newly birthed nation, remember? Full of vigor and excitement as they're launched out of Egypt. And they know who their God is in one sense, the might and power of God. But now they need to know who they are. And even more, who they are apart from God. And note this time, there's no law, no tabernacle revealed yet. No promised land, certainly. This is all preparation. All of those things that became to be identifiers of Israel are not there yet. God says, we need to deal with the residents in your heart first. Still true today. Today we will see God test his people in this text. And I'm sure for many of us with what we're going through now. Test his people as they enter the wilderness. Test his people as they enter the wilderness. Let's take a look as we now orient our hearts. Again, I want to do this so that we... This is obviously a very geographical passage. So let's take a quick peek again at, as where we're at. Have this uh, up there for you. Let's refresh the route. Remember, and I just want to point out two things so that we understand our God. If you look at the top there, the Great Sea, really the shortest distance between Egypt and the Promised Land would have been to hug the coast. But do you remember we looked at it a few weeks ago? God had another plan. There's a test or tests that need to happen. And in his sovereign will, he sent them south. If you just look at that route, we've already crossed the Red Sea and now we're heading down the coast. You'll see Marah and Elam, Rephidim. Those are places we're going to see today. So I want you to just keep that in mind. But here are two things I want to point out. Sinai is where we'll be soon, at the very bottom, at the tip of the Sinai Peninsula. But I want you to see how far away God has taken them from the promised land. Do you see that? There is much work to be done. God says, we need to go into the wilderness. We need to go into the wilderness so that you can learn that. And with that, again, as you get that geography in your mind, that journey, and look at it, it's a journey in mind. We're going to look at the first three stages of that journey. Let's now begin with a look at the first stage of this journey. And it's from Marah to Elam. From Marah to Elam. Look at verse 22 with me. And we'll just pick up where we left off. Then Moses made Israel set out from the Red Sea, and they went into the wilderness of Shur. They went three days in the wilderness and found no water. When they came to Marah, they could not drink the water of Marah because it was bitter. Therefore, it was named Marah. And the people grumbled against Moses, saying, What shall we drink? And he cried to the Lord, and the Lord showed him a log. And he threw it into the water, and the water became sweet. There the Lord made for them a statute and a rule, and there he tested them, saying, If you will diligently listen to the voice of the Lord your God, and do that which is right in his eyes, and give ear to his commandments, and keep all the statutes, I will put none of the diseases on you that I put on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord." Your healer. Then they came to Elam, where there were twelve springs of water and seventy palm trees, and they encamped there by the water. Israel heads out from the Red Sea into the wilderness of Shur. You see that? Wilderness of Shur. That would be northern Sinai, as we just saw. 
And after three days' journey, according to verse 22, they encounter an issue. They could find no water. This problem is intensified by the first stop, which would have been a water stop. And we see here in verse 23 that they do come to water. One might imagine their excitement upon seeing water there. After three days, there's water However, as they cup their hands, as they lap it up, they realize very quickly what? This water is bitter. This water is bitter. That is why the same verse tells us the place is called Marah. You likely have a footnote in your Bible telling you that's what Marah means. Bitter. Bitter. Now, at this point, you might logically envision an Israelite speaking up. Can you not just picture if you've been tracking in this account Brothers, sisters, I know it's bitter. This is not what we expected. But this is what Yahweh has planned, right? Are you with us, brothers and sisters? It's okay. You might imagine one saying, well, remember the Red Sea. We followed Yahweh and weren't we hemmed in? Wasn't our back to the sea? It's going to be okay. Yahweh's on it. You can imagine another one at the back of the crowd just jumping up and saying, yeah, yeah, you remember when they took the shroud of our bricks? We're going to be okay. Yahweh's faithful. Right? Of course, that is not what happens. Look at verse 24. And the people grumbled against Moses, saying, What shall we drink? I want you to zone in on that word grumbling there, and I want you to get really used to it, at least for this account. Get used to that word. This is the predominant attitude of Israel for what we are going to see for the next little bit. They are grumblers. And we've seen this before, chapter 5, chapter 14. We'll see three pictures of grumbling. We're going to see 12 in the entire Pentateuch. This is Israel. They grumble. God's people grumble. Often. And beloved, if I, I've, I've said this once, we continue to say it in a text, an account like this, we still grumble, don't we? Oh, how we grumble. Now, we're going to encounter grumbling a lot this morning, and yes, I want to preface, it's going to be like a stuck record, I understand. So I'm going to save any comment on grumbling proper for the end and the implications for us at the end. However, what we need to do along the way is point out the circumstances Israel was journeying three days in the wilderness, just enough time, just the right environment for Israel really to exhaust much of their ration, their their good water, the food to eat, much of it exhausted. One of you, I love this, reading ahead, said, what about the livestock they have? Well, they needed some of those animals to pull all the gear that they have. They can't eat what is actually getting them through the wilderness. All their edible food, all of their drinking water, it's all gone now. It's exhausted after three. And you can imagine eager, hard, journeying days out of Egypt were free. They use it all up. And that's the key detail we need to hang on to here as we begin. Israel is at the end of their resources. Note that. It's all gone. And while they grumble, God knows that they're really in need. It's not like this catches God off guard. God is sovereign, remember? He, in fact, knew that they would be in this position. This is what I want us to keep in mind. 
It's not like God's like, I don't know what's going to happen. No, he has led them to this place for such a time, right? God knows that. God provides, though. Look at verse 25. And he cried to the Lord. This is Moses. And the Lord showed him a log, and he threw it into the water, and the water became sweet. There the Lord made for them a statute and rule. There he tested them. There it is. God provides. Yes, we can be sure. And note the account, if you've been tracking, mid-grumbling. They're grumbling, grumbling, grumbling. There's the water, right? That's our God. In the middle of their sin, he provides. God, in fact, turns the bitter water to what? Sweet water. Note the economy of God, turning things 180 degrees around. It's the economy of God. That's what God does. And here it is even more, supernatural acts through natural means. That's the way your God works. Everybody wants the presto, right? Hand over this and that. No, God works through his creation to demonstrate his supernatural power. In fact, I would submit to you, you see this in your life all the time. The fact that you're sitting here this morning is a demonstration to that. God supernaturally works through natural means. And here he takes a simple log and he does what? He casts that simple log into the water. And don't miss the explanatory comment at the end of verse 25. Look at it. This explains it. There he, Yahweh, what? Tested them. There he tested them. Yes, the very first leg in the wilderness from Marah to Elam, those three days, a test. A test. A test for Israel to show them something, especially with the Red Sea still fresh, maybe the mist right at their backs, right? That account still in their minds. And as the test results come in, God provides this remedy. Look at verse 26, saying, If you will diligently listen to the voice of the Lord your God, in other words, you haven't been, And do that which is right in his eyes and give ear to his commandments and keep all his statutes. I will put none of the diseases for you that I put on the Egyptians. For I, the Lord, am your healer. Israel, listen to my voice. God says, do what is right in my eyes, not yours. Give ear. In other words, listen to my commands and my statutes. And if you do, look at the end of 26. If you do, I will put none of the diseases on you that I put on the Egyptians. Remember those plagues? And then this, for I am the Lord your healer. For meaning the because. I'm the Lord your healer. Now let's not miss this, friends. You look at this account and you say, but Israel's not sick, right? What's going on here? Israel's not sick. Even more, they were spared from the plagues and they made out fine. That's what... The natural observer says to this text, what's going on? They're fine, and they've been spared. Yet Yahweh says here, look at it, I am your healer. How is that? They're grumbling, sure, but they're fine. Well, that's the problem, isn't it, if we say that? That's the problem. We look and think that they're fine just because they're not drowned, and they have their firstborn. Yet the grumbling is in fact a symptom of a grave disease which Egypt had to. Grumbling is the disease. And it's called sin. 
and Israel, like Egypt, and all mankind is infected with sin. Remember, Israel could have and should have died with Egypt. Why? Because Israel deserves death too. They should have died, but they didn't. The only difference between Egypt and Israel is that God spared his people. Yet mark it, both have a virus infection. Both are infected with sin. Both, thus, need healing and saving from that terminal disease. And that is what Yahweh reminds them of here. There is only one physician for that disease that plagues all mankind. God reminds them upon their grumbling or their symptom manifestation that they are dying. And if they continue to grumble, if they continue to not heed his voice, if they continue to listen to their own voice and not God's voice, that is his words, his commands, and his promises, they will die. They will die. And that is, by the way, when you hear listening to his voice, what are we talking about there? His word, his commands, and his promises that Israel has been receiving over and over again. And we're going to see that on a grand scale as we get into Exodus 19, 20, and so forth. If Israel continues to forsake God's voice, then the disease will take them and they will continue to die. And as we mark that, we're reminded again, and this is important, that they should die. They should die, but they don't. They don't. There's Israel, still alive. It's incredible. You know, the ill-conceived Old Testament killjoy, smite-happy deity might have, at this point, given them the lightning bolt, right? Well, you know what? That's it. Honestly. The Passover, the Red Sea, it's over. That kind of false caricature God maybe would have done that, but not the true God, not Yahweh, not Israel's merciful God. Instead, he does what? Look at verse 27. This is amazing. Then they came to Elam, where there were 12 springs of water and 70 palm trees, and they encamped there by the water. Elam means large trees with big roots looking for water, which can only survive with near access to water. What a picture, and here God provides, look at it, not one spring, how many? Twelve and seventy palm trees. Yeah, that's a picture of not just an oasis, a massive oasis in the desert. That's God. From Marah, bitterness, to Elam, lush growth. That's Israel's first leg, but that's one. What about the second? From Marah to Elam, and now between Elam and Sinai. Between Elam and Sinai. Chapter 16 outlines this next leg of Israel's wilderness journey. I want you to note here a location and a time are given. This is kind of like a stamp on the text. Look at verse 1, chapter 16. They set out from Elam, and all the congregation of the people of Israel came to the wilderness of Sin, which is between Elam and Sinai on the 15th day of the second month after they had departed from the land of Egypt. The wilderness of sin there does seem ironic, but it's not referring to the sin, the transgression, just really the region. Sin, same derivative from Sinai. They're entering now as they move south that region of sin, which has Sinai. 
So geographically, they're moving further south, but also note the time stamp there. On the 15th day of which month? The second month. So this is exactly now one month from the Passover. This is your timeline of events. One month from the Passover. And here on this leg, this between Elam and Sinai, we again witness so much in God's people when we think about this first month. We're going to witness here on the second leg so much that we've seen already. Case in point, look right there in verse 2. Again, it will be indeed like a deja vu. And the whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the people of Israel said to them, Would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt, when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full. For you have brought us out into the wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. That is nothing short of astonishing, is it? What they're saying? Incredible. So much we could say there, but let's be pointed. The precision in which Israel can replicate their sin almost exactly is remarkable, isn't it? You talk about cookie-cutter sin. They just roll another one off the press. This is what we do. It's remarkable. The form of grumbling here, we've seen before, by the way, in chapter 14. And what is it now? Here's your astonishment this morning. Longing for Egypt. And we've covered that already, but we need to point it out because it's glaring in this text. Really, the only difference here, though, is that they're now griping about being hungry. You see that? And here, they pour it on. And we could say this is the maturity of grumbling, right? Grumbling needs some sort of melodramatic expression. Have you ever found that? You're grumbling, you just, I need to crank it up a notch in my grumbling. I need to paint vivid pictures. And not only do they long for Egypt, now they take part, and here it is, in their own revisionist history. I want you to see this. They're history revisionists, and this is what grumbling does. Look at verse 3. They claim to have sat around meat pots and ate bread to the full in Egypt. Are you kidding me? Now look, I'm not saying they didn't get any sustenance in Egypt, but they're painting this picture, this idealistic picture. And Westman, I want you to note this. As they not only pine for Egypt, but here it is, pull out their paintbrushes and make Egypt look beautiful, bondage and all. Present grumbling always will skew your view of the past. I want to say this again. Present grumbling will always, mark it, skew your view of the past. Your past, no matter what it entails, is always going to be better if you're grumbling now. Always, mark it. When you grumble, everything is always better. I know you know this. When you're grumbling, just give you anything but this present trial, including slavery. Give me shackles. Give me pain of the past. Anything but this present trial. That's what we do. This is why moments, and I want us to search our own hearts, when you've been a new Christian... And that first moment of trial, have you been there? And you're going through a trial and you said, I didn't sign up for this. And what do you long for in that moment? The past. You know, we do, and I would want to kind of laugh with you if it wasn't so tragic. We sit and we long for something that Almighty God has liberated us from because of a present momentary affliction. 
That's why many Christians say the past was better, the grass was greener, I was freer. There it is. I was freer then. As I was putting this together, I thought of all the ways that one would respond, that I would respond just tracking through. Israel, don't you remember? You cried out chapter 2. You were in slavery, maybe with shackled hands. God, deliver us chapter 2. What about chapter 5? Crying out to Yahweh, we have no straw. All the ways that they would have said, this is tyranny, and now you want that? Yet, of course, yet, of course, this is not how God responds. Look at verse 4. This is amazing. Here's God's response to that. Then the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I'm about to rain bread from heaven for you. And the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day that I may, what? Test them. Whether they will walk in my law or not. God says, look at it again, beloved. Verse 4. I'm about to rain bread from heaven for you. Rain down food. And look, you'll have enough for every day. God gives them what? Their daily bread. We must, with a verse like this, pause for a moment just to take in God displayed here. This is God. Beloved, this is not us. We can't do this. We don't know how to do this. This is only God alone. God here gives both mercy and grace to people that just cannot stop groaning. God spares the judgment due, amazing, and yet gives the food undeserved. Any onlooker would say, you know, enough. And God says, no, I've got bread to rain down. We marvel at how it seems God moves past the grumbling. Did you notice this? He moves past the grumbling to another test. God has a divine program here. Look again at verse 4. He'll give them food, but he's going to test them with this provision. He will provide them food and also provide them also with another opportunity. You talk about the mercy of God. Another opportunity, Israel, because you've been failing left, right, and center. Another opportunity to listen to him, to hear his word, his instruction. Israel, can you do this? Israel, can you do this now? Can you listen to your God? Israel, you were spared and your needs supplied. Can you now walk in God's law? Has he not demonstrated his power? Has he not demonstrated his provision? Has he not shown to you that what God says comes to be? Has he not shown you that he loves you and cares for you? Israel, can you do this? And watch now. God seamlessly moves into those instructions. Not a threadbare, at least here, of their grumbling. He just moves into provision. Good verse 5. On the sixth day, when they prepare what they bring in, it will be twice as much as they gather daily. So Moses and Aaron said to all the people of Israel, At evening you shall know that it was the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt. And in the morning you shall see the glory of the Lord, because he has heard your grumbling against the Lord. For what are we that you grumble against us? And Moses said, When the Lord gives you in the evening meat to eat, and in the morning bread to the full, because the Lord has heard your grumbling, that you grumble against him, what are we? Your grumbling is not against us, but against the Lord. And Moses said to Aaron, Say to the whole congregation, the people of Israel, Come near before the Lord, for he has heard 
your grumbling. And as soon as Aaron spoke to the whole congregation of the people of Israel, they looked toward the wilderness, and behold, the glory of the Lord appeared in the cloud. The Lord said to Moses, I have heard the grumbling of the people of Israel. Say to them, at twilight you shall eat meat, and in the morning you shall be filled with bread. Then you shall know that I am the Lord your God. Look at that. I am, that they will know that I am the Lord your God. Only God can weave grace and truth so perfectly together here. Did you catch it? The grace that outlines the provision and the instructions for the food. Look at it. The evening meat, the morning bread, introduced here to be expanded in a moment. Then the truth, seven times. I had to count this twice. Seven times God references Israel's grumbling. It almost comes at you in waves. God knows the grumbling and he keeps mentioning it. What you want God to do is say, what are you going to do about that grumbling? But he just comments on their grumbling. I've heard the grumbling. All capped with the ultimate reminder, just as much needed for God's people, right? As much for Pharaoh, remember, this at the end of verse 12. We associate this with Pharaoh, but now we see it's for God's people, that you shall know that I am the Lord your God. How soon they forgot their God, and yes, how soon, Westmount, we forget our God too. You shall know that I am the Lord your God. By the way, this is the ultimate knowledge that we're seeking when we're being tested, to know our God. This is the exam and the test we must pass, that we would come out and say, I know my God. I know his might and majesty. As we remember, as we should, let's be admonished with this picture of his grace. Look at verse 13. It continues. In the evening, quail came up and covered the camp. And in the morning, dew lay around the camp. And when the dew had gone up, there was on the face of the wilderness a fine flake-like thing, fine as frost on the ground. When the people of Israel saw it, they said to one another, What is it? For they did not know what it was. And Moses said to them, It is the bread that the Lord has given you to eat. This is what the Lord has commanded. Gather of it, each one of you, as much as he can eat. You shall take an omer, according to the number of the persons that each of you has in his tent. And the people of Israel did so. They gathered some more, some less. But when they measured it with an omer, whoever gathered much had nothing left over. And whoever gathered a little had no lack. Each of them gathered as much as he could eat. And Moses said to them, let no one leave any of it over till the morning. But they did not listen to Moses. Some left part of it till the morning, and it bred worms and stank. And Moses was angry with them. Morning by morning, they gathered it, each as much as he could eat. But when the sun grew hot, it melted. Look there, God provides food in two ways. Two ways. One, the quail by night. Quail, a bird common to the Middle East, would have been some quail on the ground, but hardly enough to feed maybe close to two million people. There would be quail, but not that kind of quail. And that reminds you of the incident of the loaves and the fish, right? There's some loaves and some fish, where there's a disciple say, to feed this many, in the same way the quail. God multiplied what was there, supernaturally working through natural means. And two, just as miraculous, the second means of provision, the morning bread. You know this is manna. You see it as a question with a footnote likely in verse 15. Manna from man, the Hebrew word that literally means what? 
And it became later to be manna. What is it? That's what manna means. What is it? By the way, the fact that this bread is not a natural occurrence is made clear in the name. Do you see that? Again, I read this week all of these explanations for the quail and the manna. But you know what's so amazing? And you want to say it to the unbeliever of the miracles of God. In the very name these Israelites would know and say, what is it? I.e., it's not a natural occurrence. What is this thing on the ground? We've never seen it before. So clear. God provides this heavenly bread. And let's be clear, it's God providing this supernaturally all over the ground. And again, giving this provision with these clear instructions. Look at verse 16. Gather it up, what you can eat. And you notice there the measurement in Omer, which have been two quarts, which really means a daily portion. Isn't that amazing? Gather up your daily need. That's what God says. And I love this. Look at verse 18. So you pull it together. But when they measured it with an omer, whoever gathered much had nothing left over. Whoever gathered little had no lack. Each of them gathered as much as he could eat. There it is. God provides just enough. Enough provision for the day, the 24 hours that they were living in. God never changes. That's how it is today. Is that not true? God provides for you what you need today. But God's people, maybe you and we, we struggle with this, don't we? We struggle with the big, will the Lord provide? If the Lord provides? God's people would not believe here. Here they would not believe that they would be provided each day. Even though God, think about this, has demonstrated over and over again in waves that he provides... Right, providing ultimately what they need the most, freedom. Even in the backdrop of that, they still don't believe. And their actions demonstrate that. In verse 20, we're told that they did not listen and they gathered more than they needed. Do you see that? Afraid that they wouldn't have enough for tomorrow. Oh, beloved, we relate to this, don't we? And they hoard the manna. How many pictures from last year illustrate this point? We will not have enough for tomorrow. Hoard the manna. Whether fear, whether greed, whether sheer unbelief, they did not listen. They let their, and here it is, their fleshly sensibilities, not their faith, dictate their obedience. And church, again, you know this. We are no different as God's people today. We hoard. We wonder. We worry. We don't believe. All while praying... And this is the paradox, all while praying things like this. Matthew 6, 11, Lord, give us this day our daily bread. And he does. And he does. Every day. And the rest of the chapter, by the way, confirms this, not only here, but in the Lord's Prayer. You know, famously, he talks about the birds of the air not worrying about what they're going to eat tomorrow, right? He demonstrates that. He says, don't I love you more than that? Yet, somehow for us, well, we know how because of our fallen nature and our penchant for sin, we just cannot stop being anxious for tomorrow. And again, last year showed us this. The instruction and the testing does not end there. However, look at verse 22. 
On the sixth day, they gathered twice as much bread, two omers each. When all the leaders of the congregation came and told Moses, he said to them, This is what the Lord has commanded. Tomorrow is a day of solemn rest, a holy Sabbath to the Lord. Bake what you will bake and boil what you will boil. And all that's left over lay aside to be kept till morning. So they laid it aside till the morning as Moses commanded them, and it did not stink, and there were no worms in it. Moses said, Eat it today, for today is a Sabbath to the Lord. Today you will not find it in the field. Six days you shall gather it, but on the seventh day, which is a Sabbath, there will be none. On the seventh day some of the people went out to gather, but they found none. And the Lord said to Moses, How long will you refuse to keep my commandments and my laws? See, the Lord has given you the Sabbath. Therefore, on the sixth day, he gives you bread for two days. Remain each of you in his place. Now, no one go out of his place on the seventh day. So the people rested on the seventh day. Sabbath instructions there for the day of rest. Simply this, on the sixth day, gather enough, a second portion for the seventh. Very straightforward. When you come to that sixth day, just gather a portion for the seventh. Because you're resting on that next day. Not surprisingly, Israel fails to keep that instruction too. Gathering on the seventh day, that should be no surprise. By the way, a detail that we can't overlook here, look at it in verse 29, right at the beginning. Can't miss this. See, the Lord has, look, given you the Sabbath. Do you see that? The Lord has given you the Sabbath. That's it. The Sabbath, a gift given from God to his people. Don't miss this. It reminds me of Jesus' words in the New Testament. Mark 2.27, what did it say? The Sabbath was made for who? Man. The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. How we miss this. In other words, the Sabbath, the day of rest, is a gift from God. We're going to cover this more. Sabbath continues to be one of those questions you get in the church often. What should we do on Sunday? What shouldn't we do on Sunday? All of that. We're going to cover that more extensively when we get there to the law in Exodus 20. But we just note it for now because the Sabbath is always on people's mind. And we just would at least know one thing by way of application. We note that even with the gifts and provision given by God, we sin. And we've seen this in this text, right? Even in the gifts, we still sin. Is that not true? And here, what I want to submit to you, when it comes to the Sabbath, or I would even say the Lord's Day, you know what is amazing? What are the two things that people pray to the Lord about the most? I can tell you from you know, people as they come and talk to us. I'm tired, and I need to read my Bible more. I need to get in with God more. And God says, okay, I'm going to give you a gift to do just that. A whole day to rest and a whole day to be devoted to me. And what do we do? We throw the gift away. And here we are now where people rationalize all kinds of things for Sunday because they're busy and then, shockingly, they're tired or because they don't know because they haven't been devoted in in God's word. That's what we do, beloved. And what we need to see here is to get to the one that knows us best because he designed and created us. He has given us the Sabbath as a gift for our most pressing needs today. Chapter 16 ends with a few verses of more supplemental, almost editorial, provisional info. Let's read them in verse 31. Now the house of Israel called its name manna. It was like coriander seed, white, and the taste of it was like wafers made with honey. Moses said, this is what the Lord has commanded. Let an omer of it be kept throughout your generations so that they may see the bread with which I fed you in the wilderness... 
When I brought you out of the land of Egypt, and Moses said to Aaron, Take a jar and put an omer of manna in it and place it before the Lord to be kept throughout your generations. As the Lord commanded Moses, so Aaron placed it before the testimony to be kept. The people of Israel ate the manna 40 years till they came to a habitable land. They ate the manna till they came to the border of the land of Canaan. An omer is the tenth part of an ephah. We learn here, as you look at those verses, by way of overview, the properties of the heavenly bread. Look at verse 31. What of manna? Well, we learn that its appearance is like coriander seed. We learn its color is like white, its texture like wafers, and its taste like honey. That's pretty descriptive, isn't it? You get a good sense of this, what is it? We also discover that God not only gave present instructions for the journey, but note this also future instruction for future generations. Look at verse 32. A remembrance of God's gracious provision. And here it is, a jar with an omer of manna. So a jar, and note this, with a daily provision in there. How amazing is that? Here is an emblem, an Ebenezer for generations to come. A full provision in the jar. In Hebrews 9.4, we're told that the Ark of the Covenant contained that jar. Is one of the things with Aaron's staff and the tablets. It had the jar that had an omer in it. It was to be a testimony, verse 34, like again, a memorial beacon for future Israelites. And we have talked here at Westmount a lot about how we need memorial beacons, don't we? Because why? We just forget. We're prone to wander and forget. We need these memorial beacons all the time. One last important detail here, look at verse 35. That manna was not a one or three day gift. Right? It wasn't just for this leg, a one-time provision. No, look at it. It was the people's provision for the entire 40-year wandering. Isn't that incredible? That says, I've got four decades worth of this for you. By the way, Joshua 5.12, you can mark that, confirms that the manna ceased when? When they were in the promised land and from the day they started eating the produce of Canaan. Isn't that amazing? God taking them exactly where they need to go and providing another way. One more leg of this opening wilderness wandering here. Finally, we look at the camp at Massah and Meribah. The camp at Massah and Meribah. We move now to the opening verses of chapter 17. Look at them with me. All the congregation of the people of Israel moved on from the wilderness of sin by stages according to the commandment of the Lord and camped at Rephidim. There was no water for the people to drink. Therefore, the people quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water to drink. And Moses said to them, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water, and the people grumbled against Moses and said, Why did you bring us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So Moses cried to the Lord, What shall I do with this people? They're almost ready to stone me. And the Lord said to Moses, Pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel, and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile, and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water shall come out of it, and the people will drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. And he called the name of the place Massah and Meribah because of the quarreling of the people of Israel and because they tested the Lord by saying, is the Lord among us or not? 
people move on, look again at the first verse in stages, and they settle in Rephidim. We saw that on the map earlier. They settle there. They're now south. A location, by the way, the closest yet to Mount Sinai. Again, they're well on their way now. And there, once again, they find no water. We've seen this before, and we've seen this too before. No water triggers grumbling. Grumbling so severe this time. Now look at it as it increases, and this is noteworthy for us with the same DNA. Grumbling so severe when it persists in verse 4, we're told they're ready to stone Moses. Once again, God provides for Israel, this time striking a rock. God does not miss a beat. Did you notice that? Just provides. And water flows. Moses does so. The people drink. And all is forgotten until the next time, right? No. Not this time. Here Moses ensures that God's people don't ever forget this. Instead of the memorial bread we just saw instituted here to remember, Moses renames this encampment. In other words, to say, so that you never forget what went on here. This is now Massah and Meribah, which mean, Massah means testing. Meribah means quarreling. Again, you probably have notes in your Bible to that effect. And think about that memorial for Israel here. Here are the beacons you need to see. Where Moses struck the rock, you instead, you instead grumbled, you quarreled, you were tested. It's just like the other stops in this opening month. We could say grumbling, then grace. That's what we've seen. And with this renaming, we come full circle to where they started at Marah. Do you remember Marah? Bitterness. They come from bitterness to quarreling. So fitting. And you know that full circle journey from grumbling to grace to grumbling... That journey from bitterness, Marah, to quarreling, Meribah, is not the only thing that comes back around in this account. Look at verse 7. Well, let's look at verse 2 first, the end of verse 2. Moses said to them, why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? Verse 7. The people of Israel, and because they tested the Lord, said, is the Lord among us or not? You see what's going on here? Who's the one being tested now? God. God is being tested. They turned the tables on God. Well, they thought they did. We'll put you to the test, Yahweh. We're going to put you to the test. This was the Lord testing his people, and in the end they do what? They test him. They test him. Yes, that reality would have shown Israel something if they weren't so blind. And this is the point. This was the Lord showing them, remember, what was in their heart. When God says, I'm the great provider, they turn around and say, no, we're going to put you to the test. This is the Lord showing them, I'm going to give you abundant provision and deliverance. And the people saying, no, I don't see it. I want to see more. This is the people say, no, we don't have offerings to give you. We have grumbling to give you. Their heart, as God wanted to show them what was in their heart, was a heart that wants to test God. God wants to show them and wants to show people what's in their heart, a heart that wants to test God. And beloved, I ask you, does that not resonate? What resides, what lurks deep in our souls 
is that rebellious fist that wants to put God to the test. Show me. Prove to me. I'll never forget an account with a family member that stood there and God's grace was just being showered on them. And they stood in unbelief and they looked us all in the eye and said, well, God just has to prove himself. And we cried. Because we knew what that meant. And we knew how that ended. And so it did. And so it did. God was showing them what's in their heart. And they said, no, God, you need to be put to the test. And as a result, and hear this, they would get neither Egypt or the promised land. You say, what? Aren't they on a journey? Beloved, hear this. They got neither Egypt, the slavery they pined for, or the promised land, what they thought they were getting. They got neither That's right, this generation, this grumbling generation, they would encamp, and in time, you know where they would die? Right there in the wilderness. They weren't going anywhere. Listen to the future indictment just months later. This is after a full year of this grumbling. Numbers 14. Numbers 14. Just read you a few verses. This tells you all you need to know. Then the Lord said, this is months later, I have pardoned according to your word. This is to Moses. But truly, God says, as I live, and as all the earth shall be filled with the glory of the Lord, none of the men who have seen my glory and my signs that I did in Egypt and in the wilderness and yet have put me to the test these ten times and have not obeyed my voice shall see the land that I swore to give their fathers and none of those who despise me shall see it. Do you see that? I have shown them my glory. I have shown them my might. I have shown them my power. And they are not. And they are in rebellion. They refuse to believe it. They will not enter my rest. Verse 26. And the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron saying, How long shall this wicked congregation grumble against me? I have heard the grumblings of the people of Israel, which they grumble against me. Say to them as I live, declares the Lord, What you have said in my hearing I will do to you. And listen to this, your dead body shall fall in this wilderness. And all of your number listed in the census from 20 years old and upward who have grumbled against me, not one shall come into the land where I swore. Don't miss this in numbers and don't miss this in Israel's history. The reason they don't enter into the rest of God is because of their grumbling hearts. Yes, we need to sober up this morning. We do. We do. Because they were put to the test and they put God to the test. Yes, they were given grace, but they only grumbled some more. When they were given bread, what did they say? They said it wasn't enough. Church, they failed to see this detail, and maybe we did too. Look at the detail. Maybe you've missed it. Right there in verse 8 of chapter 16. No small detail. Look right at the end. Your grumbling is not against us, but against who? The Lord. Grumbling is never horizontal. Never. Even if you're grumbling about someone, your grumbling's never horizontal. It's always vertical. Because as David said, I've sinned against who? You and you alone. You and you alone. That is looking at a merciful, gracious God at what He provides, what He ordains, and saying this, God, I am not satisfied with what You've given me. That's what grumbling is. I'm just not satisfied with my lot at all. 
Yes, you saved me. Yes, yes. Yes, you've proved your test. Yes, yes. Please don't bother me with that right now. Yes, you've given me things. Look what I'm going through right now. I must grumble. But today in this present wilderness, Yahweh, I'm just not happy. You understand. Certainly I have many ears that understand what I'm going through. I'm going to put you to the test. So hear my grumbling towards you. If you have a habit, and mark that, of grumbling at your circumstances, beloved, please, I compel you, no, I urge you. See this text today. And the warning it is, you are no different to these people. And if this is you, then heed the warning here too. Your fate will be the same. I want to be crystal clear on this text this morning because the stakes are eternal. Friends, grumbling is not a respectable sin. There's nothing to chuckle at with grumbling. This is not intended to make us feel better. This text is meant not to pacify future grumblers. Not to say, well, look at Israel, look at us too. Ha, ha, ha. Friends, this generation delivered from bondage, what was their fate? Death. Death. They died in the wilderness. This example of Israel is a siren call to all grumblers since. Here's Psalm 95, 7 to 11. Today, this is God again to a future people in Israel. If you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness, where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said they always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways as I swore in my wrath. They shall not enter my rest. It's repeated in Hebrews 3. The author of Hebrews goes on then to say, after he quotes this, he says, Take care, brothers, take care, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it's called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. That is extremely unsettling. I hope it is for all of us to grumble especially when we make light of our grumbling and make excuses for it and continue in our grumbling. So what do we do? Is that it? Do I just send you away? Is that it? We just feel bad about our grumbling? No, this warning ended with this. This is why we are the called out ones. This is why we have hope. Verse 14, Hebrews 3. For we, for we, the difference for us, for we have come to share in Christ. If indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end, Christ. The point here, this should not be you, beloved. If you have come to share in Christ, that's not who you are. You're not a grumbler. You have the ultimate provision in Jesus Christ. It shouldn't be you. It shouldn't be characteristic of you in any way. Because all your needs are met in who? Christ. You have everything you need. Right now, right here, and even more into eternity. So I ask you, have you come to share in Christ? Have you? Have you participated in the Savior? Do you know Him? Are you in Him? Against the backdrop of so much hard-heartedness and grumbling, I think we need to hear from the bread of life. What did he say? As Brother Z walked us through this morning in, in John 6. I think we need to to hear from Christ. In John 6, he does a miracle. Isn't that interesting? You know about that miracle? The loaves and the fish. They saw the miracle. 
And you know what happened? People saw the miracle and they saw the multiplication. And in their flesh, they ran after that Jesus because you know he's got a lot of temporal bread. I want some of that, right? He walks on water. People are still following him. He's a Middle Eastern celebrity at the time because he's doing mighty wonders and people are blind to see he's the son of God. Let's pick up the account in verse 25 as they're rushing toward him. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, you were seeking me, listen to this, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. If that's not flesh, I don't know what is. You're following me because all these temporal things are now great. Either way, that's why we condemn and reject health, wealth, and prosperity movements. That's not what it's about, very fleshly. No, Jesus said, that's why you want temporal things. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for what? The food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him the God of Father has set his seal. In other words, that's been the stamp. I'm him. I'm Messiah, Son of God. Yet you want bread. Then they said to him, what must we do by doing the works of God? There it is, always wanting to do. We just want to do, 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 so that we have the scales filled up for us when we die, right? So that when we die, we got a really fat portion on the scale, and we'll be all right. What can we do to have eternal life? Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but listen to this, my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is what? He who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, sirs, give us this bread always, right? How attractive is that? Never asked to ask anymore. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. You know what's incredible about this account? If you're following, you see it in verse 5. You know, the very beginning, it said, he said this. This is the miracle of those and the fish to test them. Verse 6. For he himself knew what he would do. It's not Israel anymore. There's people, the apostles, and soon to be us, the church. Beloved, I would submit to you, we endure the same test. And today of all days, in this age and time, you are seeking bread. You are. Everybody's seeking bread today. I ask you, what bread are you seeking If you want bread that's going to get you to tomorrow and ensure you have another day on earth tomorrow, you will never be satiated. If if that's your great quest, just an extra day on this earth, you will never, ever cure those hunger pains. Jesus said, I am the bread of life. That's it. The bread in which you will never hunger and live forever. And isn't it incredible? He gives this provision to people that don't deserve it. And it's a free gift from God. I don't know where you're at today, but I ask you to think about which bread you are partaking in. He is the bread of life. He and he alone, Jesus Christ, is he your feast today. Father, we thank you for this text that presses our hearts, our grumbling hearts, Lord. Oh God, the conviction... Oh God, the weight. Be merciful to us sinners. 
God, as we grumble at the rich provision, even what a picture at Westmount. We are so blessed with this assembly. We have everything we need and more, and yet we grumble. God, be merciful to us. Lord, help us now, set our hearts right, bring us back, renew us in Christ. We beg, plead, and pray in his precious name. Amen.